0: Reflection on quests, questions, and moments of illumination. Perhaps the question box should join forces with the answer circle. I think of that box of questions as a tool we may use to develop deeper appreciation of life's mysteries and its energy and power box that assists us developing our focus within limitations while lifting our wings with the winds of inspiration and hope the answer circle may perhaps help us remain more centered in the present moment and attentive to our spiritual and social horizons attending to earth sky four directions stars moon and son. I approached my prior calling as a psychologist as an opportunity to open rich dialogues on the journey of life as it occurs and its sacredness, spirituality, and healthiness. While religions may provide answers, spirituality is where answers mingle with questions, where pain. And healing and learning are never finished, where the base is not just in the religion, but in the spiritual underpinnings of each day. A day in a life, in a time, in a place. The psychologist Ken Pargament has done in-depth research on how certain religious beliefs that increase guilt may increase psychological distress, while those who have a collaborative faith report greater well-being. In his work, he finds three pillars of religion and health, capacities for empathy, balance of self and others, and constancy uh, and change in balance. Thus, we should share inspirations and pilgrimages, open powerful experiences each day of nature, harmony, and connection, and draw upon music, art, collaboration, and teamwork. And keep a sacred box of mysteries, inspirations, melodies, and grounding throughout our days and all around the circle of our horizon and the earth and our sky empathy. Empathy is a gentle wind that moves the waves of emotions among people and helps us find correct paths and commitments in our communities. May it be so.
1: All right, friends. I've been doing this every year now, and um, you're getting harder. was out there looking at the cards, I I said, these are hard. Um, Just as a note, Reverend Hannah will be doing the same thing next week. So feel free to ask the same questions, see if she answers them differently or not. It's a great way to get to know her. All right, our first question, how old are you? Do you have any kids? so despite what I look like, I'm actually 40 years old. Oh. Yay, I know, wow. Um, which I realize, you know, to some in this room, is young. Um, <laughs> but I think a lot of people think I'm in my like, 20s, you know? Um, I said that to a man on an airplane once. I said, I know I look like I'm in my 20s. He said, ah, I would have said 30. <laughs> Thanks. I did not get carded last night at a Mile of Music event, and I was very offended. I said, do you need my ID? He was like, no. All right, so I do. I have two children, um, who uh, Nevin, who is six and a half um, and going on 16, and Ellis, who is three and a half and has recently read the manual on how to be a three-year-old and is just pushing every boundary, every single one. His favorite thing to do is say no, and then he goes eh, like that. <laughs> so I have a six year old and a three year old, and uh, they're wonderful. Speaking of children, this question is will we have the Wonder Box again? Um, so we uh, we stopped with the Wonder Box in our Time for All Ages. We have done it a couple times this year, um, but we haven't had our children explicitly in this space with us because of. Um, the inability for a lot of our kids to be vaccinated. But now that that is possible, that even our youngest kids can be vaccinated, um, starting when the program year starts again and we go back to two services, we will have our children uh, welcomed in the beginning part of our service and we'll have a time for all ages. Um, Although the worship staff is playing around with the idea of our first service being a little bit more um, introspective, personal sharing, maybe congregational response, and our second service being a little bit more um, kind of forward facing with a wonder box and the children, you know, because our re will be at the second service. So, um, so we're playing around with the idea of having two kind of two options for people to choose from. So, um, I hope that answers that question. Can we make the cardinal an honorary member? <laughs> or perhaps a minister? I would say the Cardinal is already a minister, Um, I have to compete with him a lot, Um, but um, yeah, he can be an honorary member. Anyone want to make him a name tag? I also think our ducks in the pond should be at least greeters, right? What drew you the most to our fellowship? It's a great question. So it's been five years since I um, was in search for a new ministry, and um, when you're in search, you read a lot of information about a lot of different congregations, and one of the pieces of advice I was given by a colleague and good friend was to look for the congregation with the problem that you're not afraid of, Um, because every congregation is going to have some issue that they're working on. Um, And one, uh, the thing I loved about this fellowship was that the problem you all were working on was not about trust or um, drama. You know, there was none of that going on in this congregation. There was already a really established sense of love and care and trust for each other and trust for your ministry. Um, And I liked that I wasn't going to have to come in and fight that uphill battle. the issue that I was most, that was most keenly aware of was finances, um, that this congregation still struggles with. Um, but I wasn't afraid of that problem, so we're, we're still working on it together. But, um, but the thing that drew me to the congregation was the sense that you all take uh, religious community seriously. Um, that this this thing that we do together on Sunday morning and throughout the week and out in the world, um, the fact that you show up when there's something going on in the community. Um, I was at Houdini Plaza two nights ago for a Mile of Music event, and I looked around and realized I didn't see a... I'm sure there were lots of fellowship members at various Mile events, but I didn't see a lot of you at Houdini Plaza, and um, I thought, well, that's very different. Some, usually when I'm at Houdini Plaza, it's for some sort of social justice event. And um, and you're all there. <laughs> so I love that about you. Um, I also liked that you didn't take yourselves too seriously. Um, some congregations just really think highly of themselves. Um, and that's lovely, but it, but it can also be challenging. And I wanted to have fun. I wanted to have fun with you all. Um, and I think we have done that, and I think we can still do that together. So that's what drew me here, um, is the balance of taking ourselves seriously, but not too seriously. How do you find meaning of life in a very uncertain and confusing world? Um, I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. I, I mean, I don't really. That's the beauty of the question box, I don't have to have all the answers. And bonus points, you can disagree with me. You don't have to agree with my answers, that's fine. Not only today, but anytime. Um, We have something in our congregational polity that we call freedom of the pulpit and freedom of the pew, which means that you cannot compel me to say certain things from this pulpit, but I cannot compel you to agree with me, and you can say so. Um, So that is uh, that's part of our tradition. But I don't. I don't really know the answer to how you find meaning in this really complicated and confusing world, except that I would say I. I don't try to find meaning as much as make meaning. Um, I don't think meaning is laying around somewhere waiting for us to stumble upon it. Um, I think it's something we have to do, and and work together on. Um, the two pieces I think are the most important in the confusing part, is that. We do it together. That—that's the benefit of a community. In a world that is increasingly isolated, increasingly individualistic, increasingly focused on our own preferences, um, community is a is a sacred and rare thing. Um, And I think the fact that we come together to do this work where we have these questions and we don't know the answers and we wonder together and we challenge each other and we comfort each other that is key. That is key. Um, The other half of that question of how do we make meaning in a confusing world um, and certain and confusing world is that I think as Unitarian Universalists our theology has something really beautiful to say about uncertainty which is that it's not a bad thing. In so many traditions, certainty is the goal. Eliminating doubt is the goal. Um, Having faith, which means putting on blinders and uh, believing in spite of all evidence, is the goal. Here, that is not the goal. And it's not just, I say this a lot, but it's not just that we don't know the answer. And a lot of people will say that when they're describing Unitarian Universalism to their friends. I love this place. It's so great because you don't have to have the answers. It's okay. You can believe whatever you want. Don't say that. Please don't say you can believe whatever you want. Um, But I think it's not just that we can believe whatever we want and we're real wishy-washy. It's that we actually have a theological stance of wonder. Of curiosity. That's a that's a whole position that we approach the world from and for me that gives me strength and I'm less likely to be knocked over by the uncertainty of the world because I'm starting from a theological stance of wonder. So something's going on in the world, something chaotic and hard, and I you know my first instinct is to feel knocked over by that. And my next instinct, when I draw upon my faith as a Unitarian Universalist, is to say this, this is where I am, this is where we are most uh, ourselves, is in this uncertain place, right? Um, I recently got a new tattoo, a couple of them, and um, this little bitty one right here on my wrist says, all will be well. And it comes from the 14th or 15th century mystic. Julian of Norwich, uh, and she said, all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Um, And if you're looking at the short term, she is wrong, (laughs) right? Um, But if you're looking at the cosmic state, or the, you know, God's eye view, um, then I believe that she's right, Um, and I have to to believe that. in the meantime, we have work to do. And we do it together. And that's, that's that first part of that answer. So um, drawing sacred uh, strength and courage from the position of not knowing, and then doing the work together. Well, that's how I would do that. Can we discuss UU for atheists? No. Just kidding. <laughs> of course we can. Um, Yeah, I think, um, so Unitarian Universalism, for those of you that are newish, um, is a non-creedal tradition, which means we don't have a creed, we don't all agree on the things that we're supposed to believe in our minds, um, which means that in this room there are folks who believe in a god or gods or goddesses, um, or a higher power of some kind, or who would attribute the universe or nature with some sort of um, sacred power, Um, and then there are those who don't, um, who would identify as atheist. One thing I like to sort of get out in the open is that um, when we name theological categories, I like to name them as I believe statements. People often name atheism as I don't believe in God. But here's how I would name each of these. Theism is I believe in a god, or gods, polytheism is I believe in gods. Atheism is I believe there is no God. So that's an actual belief statement, it's not that I don't believe in it, it's I believe that there is no God. Agnosticism is I believe that the knowledge of God, or whether God exists, is unknowable. So it's not I don't know if God exists, it's I believe that God is unknowable. So those belief statements I think are helpful to sort of figure out where we sit in those categories. and. It's okay to sit in those categories at different times and different places in your life. If you ask me today, I might say I'm an agnostic. If you ask me tomorrow, I might say I'm an atheist. If you ask me yesterday, I might have said I was a theist. That's okay. I'm a religious pragmatist, which means whatever is useful is the correct religious path. Um, If your religious path, if your answer to that question of what do you believe, is helpful to you, if it is guiding you in your life, it is making you more connected to the world, less fearful, more helpful, more loving, good religious path, I give that a rubber stamp of yes. Whether it is an atheist path, a theist path, a pagan path, any of those paths. If it is making you scared, worried, divisive, hateful, isolated, it is not a useful path, and I would encourage you to, to talk to me or Reverend Hannah and think about your path. But Unitarian Universalism is very influenced, our history was very, very heavily influenced, especially in the early to mid part of the 1900s by humanism, which is a, um, is a religious way of sort of understanding atheism. It's a, it's a belief in human power instead of supernatural power. And um, the Humanist Manifesto that was written in the early, early 1900s, was um, a, the original one, was signed almost exclusively by Unitarian and Universalist clergy. So um, Unitarian Universalism is very comfortable with atheism um, as a religious path. Um, I like to use the phrase, religious humanism or religious naturalism, which is sometimes a slightly different version. Humanism is focused on human power. Naturalism is a focus on sort of turning to the natural world for um, the same thing you might turn to religion for. Um, But these paths uh, don't rely on there being a god. Um, They rely on uh, science, nature, human nature. Uh, instead of instead of prayer, or supernatural intervention, or something like that. Um, is there anything else about atheism that you want to know? Was that? Did I answer your question? Okay. Um, yeah, we, we try to talk about lots of different paths here, um, and sometimes we use God language, sometimes we'll talk about God. I almost never, if you actually make sure your ears stay open after you hear the word God, um, I almost never will use the word God without then explaining what I mean. Um, So if you, you know, if you believe in God or nature or the universe or, you know, I'll give you a couple other options, so I just encourage you to keep listening and find where you fit the best. Um, And also that um, to turn on your UU translators, um, you know, like Google Translate, that when you hear religious language that you're like I don't know about that Um, turn on your religious translator and imagine that there's another way that you could say that Um, one of the the series sermon series that I want to do this year is on God metaphors different ways that we can imagine God language Um, because I taught a UU theology class last year who was who here was in that class Penny was a few yep Mike was Um, yep Uh, we, uh, we had a lot of fun together doing lots of UU theology stuff, but I noticed that anytime we started thinking about the idea of God as a concept that didn't need to be accepted or rejected, which is often how we think of the concept of God, we think of it as like I know what that is and I'm either gonna believe it or reject it. When we started playing around with the idea of God as something that could be different than what we imagined it originally to be, We all had a lot more fun, um, and we got really excited about all these options, and so I want to do that with all of you um, this year, which means that you might uh, learn to like the word God a little more, um, even if you don't believe in God, even if you're an atheist. Do you think the fellowship is ready to become co-conspirators in the fight for racial justice?" And this quote, Alicia Garza, activist and co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, described that co-conspirators are people who are actively fighting against the system of white supremacy, and in particular, the benefits they receive from it. And then this next question is, how do we heal from the pain of losing Rev. Leah and her family, in part due to the racism in the Fox Valley? So those questions, I think, go hand in hand. Um, And I'm gonna say that I think we are on the path to being ready to be co-conspirators. I think we have done a lot of work in the last five years as a congregation around questions of white supremacy culture, and when you hear me use that phrase, That means the the water that we're swimming in, the culture that um, lifts up whiteness and white culture as sort of the norm or the best. It does not mean that I believe that any one individual in this room is a a white supremacist. Um, But I do think that we are starting to uncover that water that we swim in, we're starting to realize it. Our board has been doing a lot of work around what are our practices and policies and things that sort of uphold white supremacy culture. Um, I think until we all, and I include myself in this, are ready to radically change ourselves in order to be fully welcoming to people of color, um, people of different cultures in in this space, um, we will not truly be co-conspirators. Um, And I I saw something online a while ago, and it said something about, you know, inclusivity is welcoming people in, but true allyship is being willing to change who we are. So this idea that, like, we're so wonderful and welcoming and open-minded, why aren't there more people of color here? well, that, that alone should just tell us something. <laughs> that's, that's the answer. Um, and it doesn't mean that we're doing anything inherently wrong, it just means that we're not as welcoming and open as we think we are. Um, so we have, to, um, we have to be willing to examine that and change things, even if they're not the thing we love the most, um, if we actually want to be co-conspirators in racial justice. It happened that people in a raft are starving and pick a short straw of who to eat. Are you the eater or the feeder? Thanks, Tom Pennenberg. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say they can eat me. I cannot. I just would not be able to do it. That's all. That's my answer. You're going to take that home today. (laughs) Two questions after five years with us. What's your greatest accomplishment and what's your biggest disappointment? These are great questions. (sighs) Um, There's a lot of answers to both of those questions. Um, I, I would say my greatest accomplishment that I can see as I look out into this room is, um, and I know Reverend Hannah is having this experience today where you, you know, she's been in this other congregation for five years, and you get to know people, Um, and when they come in the room and you say, good morning, how's your husband, or what, you know, what's going on with that leak in your bathroom, or, you know, um, she doesn't know you yet, and that's not her fault, she's new. Um, She doesn't have ESP. I remember that feeling the first day or two, you know, second week or something. I was standing out, greeting people, hoping to God they had their name tags on so that I could say their names, um, and realizing, like, shoot, I don't know you. Um, and I tried really hard, and I arrived to a very large congregation and had to suddenly know you. Um, and you were used to a minister who already knew you. Um, and you were used to a minister who had 25 years to get to know you and um, So that I I was off on the wrong foot I mean it was hard, but I worked really hard to get to know you Um, and I'm still doing that And if you feel like you don't know me and you want me to get to know you more Shoot me an email and I'd love to have lunch with you Um, But that I would say feels like an accomplishment getting to know you and care about you and know your children and know whose parent has recently been um, moved to a nursing home or something like that. You know, those things are important to me. Um, my biggest disappointment, um, I think I'm, after my medical leave, which I just came back from after two months away, I realized that I have not done a good job of um, modeling what true ministry looks like. Ministry is not a series of tasks that need to be done. Um, And I'm really good at doing series of tasks. And so what I did was, I think in my effort to try to show you all that I could be a really good minister, I did lots of tasks. Lots and lots of them. Um, And I realized that that's not actually the goal of good ministry. Um, The goal of good ministry is uh, to spend time thinking and, and reading and being able to lead you and guide you and meet with you and, and do all of those things. It's not about how many things I can check off in a day, um, and so I want to shift my own self um, in doing that, and I, I want to bring you along in that work, too, of, um, of doing collective good ministry together, if that makes sense. All right, we're almost out of time, so I'm going to do the last one here. How do you define pro-choice? I I mean, I believe we're talking about the reproductive sense of that word, um, which is under attack right now in our country. Um, Pro-choice is uh, the belief that any person who can become pregnant, uh, and it's not always women, just as a reminder, trans people, trans men, non-binary folks can also become pregnant, so I try not to use... A woman-only language, um, that any person who can become pregnant has the complete autonomy to be able to do that uh, or not do that as they so desire. So that includes reproductive options, IVF, um, assisted uh, fertility, surrogacy, adoption, foster care as a as a need if they decide that they or are unable to care for the child that they've born. Um, it involves true uh, support from the society to give those options and choices. Um, it's not just whether or not to have an abortion, although that is a big part of it. Um, if you want to give birth, um, it's. Almost a year of your life um, in a very difficult and dangerous state um, and people should have access to health care, they should have access to support, they should a- have access to time off from work, child care, um, all of those things make uh, make our society more able to be pro-choice and I would say pro-life, um, that to be To be pro-choice is to be for life, for the life of the person who can become pregnant, for the life of the family, for the life of the children that person already has, um, and for the life of that growing uh, fetus who might be or might not be born. Um, But that life is not birth. Life is the all-encompassing nature of who we are, and we as Unitarian Universalists have a long history of advocating for choice. Um, The First Unitarian Church of Dallas was involved in the Amicus Brief in Roe versus Wade, Um, and I know members of our congregation were involved in underground networks to support abortion before Roe versus Wade, Um, and I know that you are pissed that you're having to do this again, Um, and I will join you in making abortion access and choice uh, possible for anyone who needs it. I have about 20 more questions. I will answer them in other ways. Um, Thank you for your questions, and I love doing these. These are so much fun.